0: Hello everyone. Hey there folks. This is Amanda and this is Rita. And you're listening to I, I don't, don't know, know her. her the podcast where we sweat to death. <laughs> Cuz currently we're sitting in a room that <laughs> is going to lick my finger and see the air. Like 99 degrees in here. It's a, I mean the outside is 86 and it feels like an oven in here like we're we're definitely in like a little bit of a sauna.
1: Yes, so we do have a fan on so if you hear a sweat little hum at least you're not sitting in a hot-ass room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, be glad you're not us today. Uh, apparently, Spokane decided that it's going to be July uh, at the end of May. Oh, yeah. So, uh, it's supposed to be in the mid-90s the whole week. Cute. Which I like. Sorry. Not. In, do you like smoke and wildfires? No. Then you do not want it to be 90 right okay. now. <laughs> you want it to be a nice 75 I didn't degrees. plan on getting yelled at today. <laughs> okay so you have a youtuber you want to share
1: yes i've never been a youtube person i've never been like oh this is the person that i go to um there's a youtuber her name is jamie french and i am fucking in love (laughs) uh so she is a makeup youtuber uh tutorial person i don't know what do you call that i I don't know (laughs) um And she was getting really bored after just doing just plain old makeup tutorials. And so she came up with this new thing called Makeup and Movies. And she reviews movies while she does her makeup, which, by the way, she tries new products. She is an amazing makeup artist, and she's funny as hell. So, But the movies that she reviews are so bad. (laughs) (laughs) So she just
0: reviewed The Buttercream Gang. I've never even heard of that.
1: I watched that movie as a kid, and it's hilarious the, the way she goes through it. Like, can't hardly wait. Um, what was the one with uh, Kelly Clarkson that when she first won American Idol? Oh, Kelly from and Ju- Justin. From Justin
0: to Kelly. Oh, yeah, from Justin to Kelly. <laughs>
1: she reviews that one. Um, Whatever happened to that fellow? I don't know. <laughs> I think
0: he's like a reporter for E.T., but uh, honey and glitter. <laughs> I've never seen glitter. Me neither. Abby and I have been talking about watching it as like a fun weekend movie situation. So maybe we'll get on that and then watch her YouTube.
1: Yeah. She goes in depth. Like she's literally watching the people in the background. She makes sure that she knows who the director is, the actors. And she's her satire and her comedy and her uh, commentary is
0: quite uh, enjoyable. That reminds me of one of my favorite podcasts, which is called How Did This Get Made? Oh, yeah. You've talked about that before. Oh, my God. In fact, I just listened to the episode where I was actually at the show
1: Uh, in Seattle.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's like, I would never normally do that with any show where I like went to it and then listened to it. But one it has been almost a whole ass it has been a whole year obviously more than a year obviously that was a while ago yeah yeah and so i like didn't really remember it that well and then also it was so fucking funny like <laughs> i like literally laughed out loud in my car like people around me were like what is up with that person cuz i was like <laughs> like cackling to myself so i i think that there's something about watching bad movies and like it kind of feels like a communal experience even if you're the only one in the room yes that's what i love about shows like that it's like you feel like yes and you're like yelling at the screen like yes that's so funny
1: i also like too how she points out um because a lot of these nine like late 1990s early 2000s movies were really like trying to push like such a toxic Ugh. Relationship like this is what your relationship should be for two people trying to fall in love and it's like no that's actually really bad and you're really mean and you're putting up with like really bad stuff and your friend is gross and
0: yeah yeah the eighties were like that too yeah like whenever I go back now and I look at like I watch stuff that I loved as a teenager which was in the you know late nineties and early aughts so those movies are already old mm-hmm. but like. They were still so fucking popular to our, to the millennials, like yeah. things like 16 Candles. Oh, yeah. Which has like a fucking really bad date rape scene in it. It does. And I'm like, ah! Yeah, and then it like romanticizes it and everything. But even just the other day, somebody in my, uh, one of my group chats mentioned Easy A. And Abby and I just rewatched Easy A mm-hmm. not that long ago that has um, Emma Stone. yeah. And I remember it being, like, so progressive and feminist and cool and sex positive and all of this stuff. And I rewatched it with Abby, like, probably two or three months ago. And I was, like, horrified.
1: Uh, I've never
0: seen it. So. Well, I loved that movie. I will say there's lots of really great stuff in it. But, like, there's also stuff like um really kind of homophobic stuff. Okay. I didn't care for. So, yeah, it was a little problematic. Yeah. Jamie French points all of that out. (laughs) How do you spell Jamie? Uh, J-A-M-I-E. And so if if somebody wanted to watch her YouTube, we would just go into YouTube, search Jamie French Jamie French makeup makeup and movies. All right.
1: Now you guys all have a good recommendation. (laughs) Literally just been in bed in the morning when I wake up and I'm just like, I wonder what Jamie's put up
0: today. (laughs) See, I'm obsessed with skincare YouTube, so I have two really great YouTube recommendations for if you're into skincare. One of them is this really great older woman, I believe she's 58, who has incredible skin Ooh. and is also super forthcoming with like, these are the procedures I've had done. Okay. So that you know that it's like, well, yeah had some help <laughs> yeah it's not just your serums but that's awesome though that's realistic yes and that one is hot and flashy <laughs> <laughs> Nice. that's just, oh my god that's a dope ass name <laughs> right it's a great name and also um when her when she runs she reviews makeup like a foundation she has like foundation friday for over 50 oh and I'm not over 50, obviously, but I really love how thoroughly she tests foundation. So Mm -hmm. she'll put the foundation on and then she'll put, you know, she'll be in front of her really great lighting system. But then she'll be like, but that's not realistic. I don't sit in front of my lighting all the time. Yeah. So she also like takes her camera and shows it under like harsh kitchen lighting and in light coming through a window. And then she'll go out in like a full sun and show you what it looks like in full sun. Hmm. So you can see that like sometimes and also she'll do a flash photo. So you can see if there's, you know, flashback.
1: Yeah, like if the tone doesn't match when mm-hmm. the light hits. Okay.
0: Or if it like washes out when it's in the flash. Mm. I just love how thorough that that is. Like that's helpful. It's super helpful. So it's not it's not funny like Jamie French, but it is very helpful. And the other one I I like to watch is Doctor Lee, which is two dermatologists who are very good looking, <laughs> uh, talking about you know niacinamide and. <laughs> <laughs> sunscreen I'm like a sunscreen fetishist at this point
1: <laughs> I know <laughs> like how you have like your little sunscreen like twisty tubey thing and you're just like putting it on all the time
0: oh yeah I have um in my in like on my person I usually have like three different kinds of sunscreen hmm. I have like spray sunscreen for my body I have this powder sunscreen if I like want to put powder on I also have lip sunscreen. <laughs> Ooh, that's intense. <laughs> and I put sunscreen on every morning. One thing
1: too about Jamie French, she'll get a product and it's not good.
0: Oh, I love it. But she'll,
1: she'll tell you it's not good. She'll like put it up to the camera and be like, look at this shit. And then she'll make it work. So like works with it. So mm. yeah, shows you oh, how to like nice. maybe if it's too light of a concealer, maybe go in with like a little flash of bronzer or something. So it that's helpful.
0: That is cool. So who do you have today? I have an incredible person.
1: Okay, I'm ready. That
0: took me quite a bit of not only quite a bit of time to research but also I would say a lot of education outside of this person. Okay. Do you know who Kitty Cone is? No. Don't you love that name, though? Yeah. Kitty Cone. Yeah. It just rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> Kitty Cone was a political organizer and disability rights activist who organized the longest nonviolent occupation of a federal building in U.S. history.
1: Holy shit. Mm-hmm. I'm ready.
0: Uh, her real name was actually Curtis. I've never heard of a woman named Curtis. I would have to say I... Haven't either. Yeah. Yeah. So her full name was Curtis Selden Cohn. She was born on April 7th, 1944 to Hutchinson Cohn Jr. and Molly Mattis Cohn. And they were, uh, they lived in Champaign, Illinois. Curtis, uh, who was known by everyone in her family and outside of her family as Kit or Kitty, was really fortunate because they were a really wealthy family. Okay. Like wealthy. Like stupid wealthy. Wealthy and very connected. Okay, um, her father actually like grew up attending really posh private boarding schools in D.C. Mm, okay, so I read this uh, really fantastic three hundred and twenty-two page long interview. Holy shit! <laughs> that took place over two years with uh, Kitty. Okay, and in it, she talked about how like the one of the I think the one that her father attended was actually the one that Al Gore's son also attended. So that's the level that we're talking about here. Uh, Her father attended private boarding schools in Washington, D.C. and eventually went to Harvard Law School. Oof. What he really wanted to do was he wanted to be an ornithologist. What's an ornithologist? Those are bird scientists.
1: Oh, that'd be fascinating.
0: Yeah, but his dad was like, you can't be a professional bird watcher. (laughs) Dad, the birds. (laughs) And that is why he attended law school. But he actually didn't really love law, and he ended up going into the army after World War II began. And that means that when she was born in 1944, he was actually stationed overseas. And she did not meet him until she was around two and a half years old. Oh my God, like at all? At all. She never met her father during that time because he was in the war. That's crazy. So the way Kitty describes her family, um, they seem to me extremely WASPy. Okay, as in white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Mm-hmm. Clutches pearls with that. <laughs> um, they were very upper-class white people who went to private schools and never talked about anything serious. You know, There's... So this is the opening scene of Dirty Dancing. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, that's perfect. They are those people. Okay. So, one of the things that they just didn't talk about was like, it was like ingrained in them to not talk about was like, if anything was going wrong in your body, it was like, that's not something you talk about. Okay. So, um, that was a problem because her body was beginning to develop in ways that indicated that something wasn't quite right, but they just ignored it. And it wasn't until she was in first grade and her teacher was like, um... Kitty only walks on her toes. Okay. And that's not good. No. So we need to not have her do that. Like, you should take her to a doctor. And they finally convinced her mom that she should, in fact, take her to a fucking doctor and find out why she can't walk on her heels. How terrible. Yeah. And her family had noticed, obviously. It's not like you, like, wouldn't notice your child only walking on their toes. Mm -hmm. But it was just one of those things where... They don't talk about it. This is what she said about her family. If there's something going on with the body, my family just sort of ignores it. They didn't make a big deal out of stuff, and something has to be really serious before they deal with it. Jeez. Her mother does eventually take her to the doctor, and the first diagnosis she gets is cerebral palsy. Hmm. That's incorrect. She doesn't have CP. Okay. The doctors that Kitty went to were often, well, always actually VA doctors, because they got free health care through the VA, right? Mm Um, but that also meant that they weren't very good because the VA was very historically underfunded, is continues to be historically underfunded, mm-hmm. and they just didn't get great care. And um, she did not have CP. What she had was um, a disease called muscular dystrophy, okay? And muscular dystrophy is, a, is actually a group of diseases. There's a whole bunch of different kinds. But the basic is that muscular dystrophy uh, damages and weakens the muscles over time. There are different kinds of, of muscular dyst- dystrophy, some of which are more intense, more progressive sooner, and some are like take longer. Yeah, just like from case to case. Well, different. just different kinds. It's like... Uh, one of them, it's like by the time a kid is like four or five years old, they're basically, okay. their muscles have given up. But some people will be able to walk into adulthood and then sometime in their 20s or 30s, they'll be wheelchair bound. Okay. So it seems to me that most people end up losing the ability to walk if they have muscular dystrophy, but some people it's sooner than others. But because she was misdiagnosed, first was cerebral palsy and then later on, um, with polio which she also didn't have obviously she then got a lot of bad treatment it sounds like they're just guessing absolutely <laughs> so kitty was put in casts on both of her legs because her heel cords in her feet were tight because they were weakening and getting damaged mm-hmm. and uh they were trying to stretch her heel cords out which sounds incredibly painful oh, that sounds painful. so painful then uh, her father was a, at some point stationed in Tokyo. So the whole family moved to Japan and she lived in Tokyo. And in Tokyo, they, that's when they diagnosed her with polio and they started performing surgeries on her, including both of her hips. Um, and they did one at a time. And so she, the whole time that she was having these surgeries, she was bedridden mm-hmm. because obviously when you're, no, hip your surgery, hips you are your core. Like you can't move. Yeah. You can't move. But those are the actual opposite thing you should do for muscular dystrophy. If you have muscular dystrophy, you should be at, like you actively using your muscles for as long as you can and trying to strengthen them to try to make them last longer. Mm-hmm. So being bedridden actually progressed the disease faster for her. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And she was 11 and was like... This needs to stop. Stop. This is making things worse. She could feel in her body that it was making her worse, but the doctors wouldn't listen to her. So she told her parents and her parents were like, I think the doctors know best. Oh, gosh. So once again, like she just wasn't listened to. Um, Kitty's family moved around a lot. I mean, I already mentioned that she was living in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Uh, She lived in like Florida, Georgia, Tokyo, Kentucky, Illinois, D.C. Like all over, all over. So, she didn't have very many, like, roots or long-term friendships or anything like that. But one of the few people in her life that actually did stick around and was, like, really important to her was... A, nanny's not quite the right word, but it's probably the closest approximation. Okay. Well, caregiver? Yeah. I guess. Um, I mean, she was a child. So, I mean, it's like a nanny, but she also did, like, household chores and things like that. Okay, And that was a black woman named Helen. And this is... I mean, if she's like eleven or so, because Helen moved into the family house when Kitty was quite young. I think she was like six or so. So that was like 1950. Okay, and she moved with them as they moved across the country. And Kitty, Kitty said later on that you know, I mean, when she was a child, Helen seemed like this sophisticated older adult, but. Mm-hmm. She thinks she was probably only 18 or 19 when she first moved in. Oh, wow. So young. Yeah. So she was like, I mean, she was basically like a big sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they were always together, Kitty started to see at an early age what racism really was and what Jim Crow laws were. And she, she couldn't quite conceptualize the, the thing that was happening. She just was like, well, why can't Helen come on the ride with me? Mm-hmm. I don't understand. Or like when they would go on a family vacation, Helen would often go with them. Like if they went on a road trip, and the family would stay in one hotel, but she stay in another. Yeah, Helen wasn't allowed to stay with them, and she would be like, "I don't why, understand I don't, why." Yeah. Um, and for the most part, like that, she thought it was wrong, so she would always say something. Like one time, they she wanted to get on this carnival ride, and. She wanted obviously Helen to ride the ride with her, and they were like, "She can't get on the ride with you." And Kitty was like, "Why, Why can't she get on the ride?" And like, and it was like indignant about it. Like, well, if she can't get on the ride, then I'm not going to ride the ride. Oh gosh! <laughs> uh, but you know, and and I think she knew obviously to some extent what that meant. But like a very sheltered white rich child
1: mm-hmm.
0: who just does who has
1: no no idea nothing. of what that's about nothing.
0: And you know, as was pretty common for her family and their stature, she attended mostly private schools. Mm-hmm. She was an excellent student, incredibly intelligent, like top of the class. Um, when she ended up in Kentucky, though, she attended public school for the first time, mm-hmm. and she was she talks about being like snobby because she was like, "Oh my God, this is what you're learning? Oh no, I this four years ago." <laughs> oh,
1: shit. <laughs>
0: And she was just a, appalled by... Well, if you're in this one world, and then you, you
1: get to see these little slivers of other things, of course you're going to comment and mock or,
0: you know. And I think also because she's walking into these classrooms and she's so much more advanced than these other students because she's been in these really amazing preparatory schools. mm mm-hmm. She also starts to notice how how like openly racist everyone is because it's Kentucky, yeah, and that was new to her because even though her family very much was probably racist, Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't the same kind of racism. Huh. Uh, In fact, uh, she talks about her family being part of the Southern aristocracy. Oh, okay. So that means that they were obviously racist, but they were racist in a dignified way. Oh, gosh. Like, for example, her father would have never used the N-word. Hmm. That is an uncouth thing to say. But that doesn't mean he didn't harbor the same ideas behind yeah. the word. You know what I mean?
1: You're still racist, even though if you don't vocalize your
0: racism. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he vocalized it in different ways. Mm. Like, he didn't see a problem with Helen having to stay in a different hotel. I see. You know what I mean? Yeah. He just was never going to use the n-word because that is rude mm-hmm. <laughs> so she boggled, sorry, <laughs> I'm boggled <laughs> so so her like her upbringing is you know different kind of racism, yeah, and, and I bet and, a different kind of
1: judgment and
0: And one that's a lot more, I think, insidious because it is hidden. Yeah. But when she gets around these public school students who are, like, openly dropping the N-word all the time and so on and so forth, she was like, what the fuck? (laughs) And really started calling people out. She kind of became known as a wet blanket. Oh, (laughs) she Because she would just constantly be like, uh, so I, I can't remember what she talked about. Like, she was over at a friend's house and they were watching TV and... And uh, they'd watched some movie where uh, a black man was like wrongly accused of something. And at the end, it fa- it came out that these, this rich white guy was the one who did the crime. And she like pauses it and is like, see, this is why black people, blah, 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 blah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and every in the room is like,
1: Ugh. "No, That's like good on her, though, because she's not afraid.
0: It seems to me like she had a sort of born sense of justice Mm. even though she didn't necessarily have the the education the experiences that Mm -hmm. would help shape her into a better person Hmm. so (laughs) she's moving through junior high and high school and as she's doing so she's losing more of her mobility Mm -hmm. Um, she can still walk but it's becoming increasingly more difficult for her And this becomes a real big sticking point when she enters into a different private school. It's called the Mount Vernon Seminary School in Washington, D.C. And this was like a big deal school. Like This is where you want to go. Okay. So the headmistress met with Katie, or sorry, not Katie, Kitty, when she first got there and said that she was only allowed to take a bath in the house mother's bathroom. Why? Probably because of adult supervision. Because okay. they didn't want the liability of her falling. Oh, okay. But the bathtub was way too big for her, so she couldn't get in and out of it. And she was like, why would I... Like, this is this is going to make me fall. Yeah. Is to have to be in this bathroom. And also, that means that she's completely removed from everybody her own age. Yeah.
1: And also, people are going to notice that. It's
0: going to cause
1: some social strife.
0: Mm-hmm. And she... Like at the school, she lived in a suite style. So like there were two bedrooms and a bathroom and each bedroom had two girls in it and they shared a bathroom. Mm -hmm. So she could get in and out of the bathroom in her suite and in the bathtub. So what she did was she just said like, I'm just going to bathe in here and I'll make sure roommates around. So if I fall or whatever, they can help me up. Yeah. And so she had this roommate that just sort of like always made sure that everything was going Okay. But that was like against the rules, right? The headmistress had specifically said you have to bathe in this house mother's bathtub. Another thing that she told her was that she wasn't allowed to go to certain places on campus. And one of those places was this hockey field because the hockey field was like down a little slope. Okay. And, um, And I believe by this time she was walking with a cane and she didn't want her to go down this hill because she might fall. But there were like, whole school events where everybody went onto the hockey field and she would just have to be sitting in her dorm. Like somebody couldn't lend an elbow.
1: Like if they were that concerned.
0: And there was this all school competition one day and she was actually, I think in the competition, it was some like, and she was very involved in school activities. Like she was not like a wallflower. And so she wanted to be down on the hockey field. Right. So she went down there on her own and like nothing happened. She was fine. But after that, the headmistress realized that Kitty's not following these restrictions that she'd placed on her. So they expel her. They kick her out of school.
1: Oh, that is so against the law.
0: (laughs) It is now. Yeah. It was not then because there was no such law. Holy shit. (laughs) So this is crazy also because at this school. Yeah. She did the PSAT, right? Like that's the before the SAT. She had the highest score in the whole school.
1: Wow. But the, the entire
0: school, the entire school, but because she wanted to go out in her own bathtub and walk down a field, she had she to got kicked, kicked out. So when Kitty eventually graduated from high school, she actually attended five high schools in the course of her four years of high school. It's a lot. She was dead set on attending an Ivy league school. She really wanted to go to one of the seven sisters, which are the um, girls only women's only campuses mm-hmm. in the Ivy leagues. But none of those university campuses were accessible at all in any way. Wow. If she had gone there, you know, because at this point she could get around like if, if she was in her bedroom or whatever and want to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. she could walk to the bathroom Although labored, um, but if she wanted to go any distance of any kind, like across a, a campus, she would need to have a wheelchair. Yeah, and there was nothing about those campuses that was accessible. There was not a single building that didn't have grand staircases going into them, and there were no ramps. There were nothing. So she was just incapable like, of. What being is able somebody going to
1: carry her or something like that? Right, like,
0: and they'd no. have to carry her and her wheelchair everywhere she went, so she could not go. Yeah, There's nowhere to live. So she uh, was pushed by her family to attend the University of Illinois in Champaign because it was like the, one of the only universities or maybe the only university that had specific accommodations for severely disabled people. Okay. So they were all like the university had this thing called the University of Illinois rehabilitation program. And all of the disabled students were required to enter that program and it was not great. Rehabilitation program. Yeah, that it doesn't sound bad, right? Like I was like, okay, because like it said like, you know, if you have a required PE course, instead of going to the regular PE class, you would go to the rehab center and they would do like muscle work with you. Okay. Which is like, okay, not great. I don't love the idea of being segregated. Yeah. But um, like maybe it was well-meaning. But it was created by able-bodied people for disabled people. Mm-hmm. And the history of the way in which people in society treated people with disabilities was basically one of two ways. Either they were reviled as like some kind of aberration, mm-hmm. and they were like contagious and gross or whatever, or they were treated like uh, babies. Yeah. Oh, they're all poor. They were, you know, very They were pitied. Yeah. Yeah. Very paternalistic, very infantilizing. And to me, that program kind of fell under that. Okay, It was very much like, we need to control you. We need to know what you're doing. We know what's best for you. Yes. And I, but it actually kind of like had really contradictory policies. So the first thing that every student who was disabled had to do is they had to, first off, be part of this program. They weren't allowed to like opt out. And two, the, they had to come early to school before the other students arrived, and they had to go through what they called functional training week. Okay, what does that <laughs> entail? Uh, functional training week was where all of these disabled students would have to prove that they could do everything for themselves, like go to the bathroom. How invasive. So in a room full of people, they would have like, I don't know if they had like, I don't know if they followed them to the bathroom or what, but like they had to prove that they could transfer from a wheelchair to the toilet. They had to prove they could transfer from their wheelchair to a bed. They had to prove all of these things.
1: Like they're making it up that this is how they live their lives and they have to show people like. But even
0: if you needed help. That's okay, yeah, like if you were the kind of person who maybe you needed some assistance going to the bathroom, like just to be lifted over to the toilet and then mm-hmm. lifted back, like that's okay. You can still attend college, yeah, doesn't so affect if you your can't brain. do that
1: if you're if you're going to inconvenience any of us with your disability, then you can't go here. Right, shit.
0: So that was not great. Um, And in fact, Kitty's told specific stories about people that she knew on campus. Like, first off, it fucking snows in in Chicago Mm -hmm. a lot. And it is wet, heavy snow because of the lake. And they were in wheelchairs, like navigating across this fucking campus in these wheelchairs. And if they were seen getting help from someone, like if somebody pushed them to help them get out of like a rut, they were seen as weak. By the university rehab program.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: They would be reprimanded for it. Like,
1: what the fuck? For somebody helping them? Yes. You had to prove that and you And then you're controlling your other students that way too, of someone who would maybe volunteer to be like, hey, we're going to the same class.
0: Yeah. Well, it would also tell that student who is potentially helping that those people don't deserve your help. They don't need your help. You know, and, and then trouble. later, like, if you come across a disabled person who cannot help themselves for whatever reason in a situation, you're going to judge them like, well, he can't even help himself. Mm-hmm. You know, it just sets up a really toxic environment for yeah, for everybody, because then the people who really do need some help will never ask for help. And the people who want to
1: help won't offer.
0: Right. Terrible. I don't love it. <laughs> no. And so she because at this point she could still stand up and walk a little. And the bed they had to practice on for functional training week was a high bed. So she just like stood up and then sat on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when she got into her dorm room, the bed was actually much lower. And she really did need to transfer from the chair to the bed and just had no idea how to do it. Because they didn't teach them how to do it. They just expected them to do it. <sighs> and so she gets into her dorm room and is like, well, I actually need to know how to transfer <laughs> to this fucking bed. hmm And thankfully, there were, you know, she was in a dorm room with other, uh, or in a dorm with other disabled folks. And she met a woman there named Mary Lou Breslin, who she would become lifelong friends with, who also became a really big activist, disabled, uh, disability rights activist. And Mary Lou was the one who came in and like taught her and like kind of just showed her the ropes for a while. Mm -hmm. Just like showed her, like, this is how you do this, this is how you do that, this is how you do this. So Kitty was like, came from this very, conservative background very rich and white and sheltered and privileged and so her first like semester of college she very much fell in line with what you would expect a kid like her mm-hmm. she was you know she became a cheerleader they were called like the giz the giz sports or something i did not care what? for the name because i kept seeing giz in my mind and i was like yeah <laughs> But it was G-I-Z-Z. I'm not crazy. That looks like jizz. That does look like jizz. <laughs> but they were like, they, the, because the University of Cham- uh, Illinois in Champaign had like this whole rehab program, they had wheelchair sports. Okay. So she became a wheelchair cheerleader. Okay. Which is kind of cool. She also ran for and won a spot on the Student Senate. Wow. Like she was super nice. involved on campus. Yeah. Right? At the end of her first year of college, her mother died of cancer. Oh, no. Kitty had no idea her mom even had cancer. Because she didn't talk about it. Because oh my their fucking gosh. family kept it from her.
1: Oh my gosh, that is tragic.
0: Yeah, nobody called to say, like, your mom is towards her end of times. Like, why don't you come see her before she goes? Nothing. So she um, left school and ended up staying home for the summer and I believe also that fall semester and like helped her brother out. She had a brother named George and he was younger than her. So she stayed behind and like made sure everything got handled. When she returned to school, she met a young man named Rudy. Rudy, Was, I think, a little older than her, like in college, like a year older or something. And he was severely disabled from polio and was super active in the Young Democrats and the NAACP on campus. Kitty still considered herself a Republican at the time, but she did care about issues that had to do with race and civil rights. Mm -hmm. So he was like, gotcha. (laughs) Uh not only did he really want her to like join the Democrats and become more progressive, he also really wanted to date her. Oh. <laughs> and so he was like he would like bait her into Oh my gosh, debates. arguments.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and um, you know, honestly he he won. <laughs> so he did he didn't manage to win her over, which I was really actually quite surprised by. Um but I think that's because she really kind of was malleable in how she thought about things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's really easy to sort of take somebody who's already got a foundation of kind of believing in justice and Mm -hmm. be like, okay, but you really can't be a Republican if you believe in justice. (laughs) It's just not possible. Uh, So she joined the Young Democrats. Oh, gasp. But she became disillusioned with the Democratic Party almost immediately. Why? Uh, because she'd campaigned for and voted for Lyndon Johnson. Okay. He ran against Barry Goldwater and that was like the big election and you know, she was very passionate about about people voting for Lyndon Johnson because Barry Goldwater was very adamant that he was going to bomb the fuck out of Vietnam. Oh. So she was like, We're go- we got to get Lyndon Johnson in there because, you know, we don't want to have this war. But then as soon as Lyndon Johnson was in mm-hmm. office, he went back on his campaign promises and he bombed the fuck out of Vietnam. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I could I could see her, though, from learning a little bit about her personality. I was like, she's kind of an all-in person. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if she's really rolling with something, she's going to go with it.
0: Yeah, she does have a tendency, I think, to go like full bore. Mm-hmm. So she joined the anti-war movement on campus and she also joined the Students for Democratic Society and Friends of SNCC. SNCC was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was uh, the college version of MLK's organization. Okay. Kind of. I mean, it was started by John Lewis, who died uh, you know, last year. Um, amazing, incredible man. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, he, there's that famous photograph of him uh, being beaten at the other side of the Selma bridge. Yeah. So she joined the friends of SNCC. So SNCC was in exclusively, I believe black students. And mm-hmm. so the friends of SNCC were white, like white or other students who wanted to Allies. ally with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's pretty great. I love that she did that. And in fact, um, did some of the things that I've been doing myself in the last couple of years, like raising money for bailing out civil rights protesters and freedom riders and things like that. And she did organizing work and demonstrations around the civil rights legislation. I wonder if her family knew it all. Oh, we'll get to the family. Oh, okay. <laughs> she right. was actually we'll arrested during one of, her de- one of these demonstrations and because her family... Was so well connected. In fact, her uncle was a congressperson who represented the district that Champaign, Illinois is in. Oh, my gosh. She probably just was popped out. Her arrest made the papers. Oh, shit. And this marked the decline of her relationship with her father. Mm. He felt that she had disgraced the family by being part of this. And their relationship just continues to widen. Mm-hmm. As she goes gets older, um, they basically just don't have much of a relationship by the time he dies. Yeah, I w- couldn't see how they could. Right. Yes, he definitely disagreed with... Uh, by the time he dies, I'm sure, I'm sure he disagreed with her on like 90% of everything. Oh, yeah. So during her junior year of college, she really was pushing to be allowed to live off campus. He had to get permission to live off campus if you were a woman and mm. especially a disabled woman. And they were treated so differently also. Like men were allowed to come and go out of their dorms at any they didn't have curfews or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And women had curfews. Women on campus had curfews. They were not allowed to be out on a weeknight past like 9 and they could be out past 1 a.m. on the weekends. What the hell. And she really wanted to move off campus partially because She had been told wrongly when she was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, which happened when she was 15, that she would die young. Oh. And so she was really like, I want to know what it's like to live on my own before I can't. Mm -hmm. She was still able to somewhat walk and take, you know, like take care of herself. And so she was like, I want to have a chance to like cook my own food and, you know, do my own shit. I want to be a full ass adult. So she had to ask permission to do this, right? <laughs> the man in charge of the program told her he hated he hated her activity and involvement in like left organizations. Mm-hmm. So he told her that. She was, he could, he could tell she was getting weaker because of all of the protests she was participating in. Oh my gosh. And he implied that the only reason that she wanted to move off campus was so she could have sex. So what if she does? (laughs) That's a good fucking reason to move off campus. What's your problem? (laughs) And that's just so degrading. It is. But once again, her connections did prove fruitful and she was allowed to move off campus because her family was really well connected. Mm Mm-hmm. Eventually, Kitty just stopped attending classes, though. Uh, She had become so involved in politics and organizing and protests that school just sort of, like, didn't really matter.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: It was very clear to her, I think, that her future lie in what she was already doing. Mm -hmm. And that she didn't need a degree in English literature to do what she was doing. Yeah.
1: And also, like I said, she's all in. So if she's focused, she's focused.
0: And and actually, she had become uh, more and more... (laughs) Talking about being all in like she went from being a Republican to being a young Democrat to then being like, I'm not a I'm not even a Democrat. And now and now at this point, she she's in the Socialist Party Ooh. and actually is a Trotskyist, which Frida Kahlo was as well. So, yeah. You know, it's pretty like at this point. Intense. Kind of <laughs> radical. Right. Yeah. um And so she was like, I don't need a fucking English degree. <laughs> <laughs> she dropped out just eight credit hours shy of her degree. And she never went back. Wow! Instead, she moved to Chicago. God, I bet
1: that pissed her family off even more. Oh,
0: you know it. You know yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, she moved to Chicago, where she became very immersed in political activism. Chicago's always been a like really great center for activism and organizing work. Hello, mm-hmm. Barack Obama. And she worked there as an anti-war organizer for the Young Social Alliance, which was the young or youth branch of the Socialist Workers' Party. And she also at this time started traveling around quite a bit, which is really cool. She went to Latin America, South America, Europe. Um, She even met Hugo Blanco. Have you heard of him? Hugo Blanco. Mm -mm. I had not heard of him. He was a very famous Trotskyist at the time. Who had been exiled um, to Chile from his native Peru for his political activism? Okay, and so she, she actually got to visit him in prison. Wow. Yeah. By this point, Kitty identified as a Trotskyist as well, and that was a leftist ideology that favored power. To the working class in a global way. Mm -hmm. Like all the working classes should be globally connected across countries, across languages, across cultures, and the working class should be given the power. So Kitty was also becoming more involved in the women's movement around this time, which had started to crop up, right? She'd been super involved in the anti war movement, super involved in civil civil rights. Now she's in the women's movement. And she actually was put in charge as the coordinator of a coalition of women's groups in Chicago called the Women's Day Coalition. Uh, I'm not going to get too in the weeds with her activism stuff uh, at this time, but I do want to share what the demands were of this coalition. Okay. This is in 1968. So
1: if you want to be a part of this group.
0: So the, it's a coalition of different groups across okay. the city of Chicago. So she's the one coordinating all of these groups and they're coming forward with one specific agenda. Okay. And this was their uh, demands in 1968. Free abortion on demand. Oof. This is before Roe v. Wade. Yeah. It is illegal. And it was actually stemmed from um, a situation where a teenager had been raped by a cop. Oh, geez. And she was very anti-cop. Mm-hmm. She also, uh, the coalition also demanded free 24-hour childcare and equal pay for equal work. There you go. These are all great ideas. These are all like ideas that I'm like, TikTok motherfuckers! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Through these connections, she was also being introduced to gay women. And that would prove to be the start of her coming out journey. Oh, okay. Interestingly enough, she was having this awareness of the discrimination of being a woman and the discrimination of people who uh, were poor, uh, And people of color, but she hadn't yet conceptualized disability as an area of civil rights or discrimination. Mm -hmm. Because that was like, it had always been portrayed as an individual concern. Like, your your legs don't work like everybody else's legs. Mm -hmm. That's a you problem. That's not a group problem. Yeah. And so she really hadn't yet conceptualized the idea of disability rights
1: as well i mean their group is probably so fucking marginalized
0: yes uh, although she wasn't i mean obviously at being at the university of illinois in champaign in this program she knew lots of other disabled people mm-hmm. um you know because i would have thought that that at some point she would have become a little bit more aware of that during that time especially with how active she was i wonder if she harbored a little bit
1: too of that what her family ingrained in her of we're not going to make a fuss about it. She just put her head down and she made it happen for herself, but not thinking of talking about it in the open.
0: Yeah. Like nobody was talking about like, isn't it fucked up that we can't go to Ivy league schools? Yeah. (laughs) It was like, that's a you problem. Mm -hmm. It was an individual issue. And even the people there, like she talked about, you know, like even folks that she, ended up later on becoming involved in disability activist activism with from that school were always less radical than she was Mm. in regards to disability rights because of the, I think the mentality of that program and the mentality that they had grown up in where it's like, you need to be able to do everything yourself with no help, no help. So uh, after a bad breakup with a boyfriend and a few moves around the country, Kitty wanted a fresh start. So she came out as a gay woman and moved to Berkeley slash Oakland, California in 1972. Oh, that's
1: a big move. It's
0: a big move. But she loves Berkeley, (laughs) Oakland. (laughs) When she first arrived, she continued working for the Socialist Workers Party, and her office was on Telegraph Avenue. And that is a really busy, busy street, Telegraph. She lived about a mile from the office so she lived on telegraph i think as well okay but she lived about a mile down the street um and so she had to go down telegraph to get to her office and by this point she is you know mostly wheelchair bound i think in, exclusively at this point none of the streets had curb ramps oh no so in order for her to get to her office or get from her office to home she, she had in the street to be in the street oh yeah. my gosh yes then when she got to the office one of the organizers in the office would have to lift her into a pushchair and carry her in her chair in the chair up the flight of stairs. And then another comrade after work because after work it was like crazy busy mm-hmm. streets. Another one would follow her home in a car to make sure she didn't get run over.
1: Jeez. Yeah. Couldn't he put her in the car
0: and drive her? Probably mm-hmm. not because at this point she I think had a she, she talked about having, like, a really great fucking wheelchair. Okay. Which she, interestingly, got from the Jerry Lewis mustu- Muscular Dystrophy Telethon. Do you remember when Jerry Lewis used to do those dumb telethon, telethons on TV? Not really. I vaguely have a recollection of it from when I was a child. A telethon? Okay. Yeah, where they would, like, have, you know, they would have, like, the bank of people answering phones. Yeah. And they would, you know, have, like, entertainment and but in between the entertainment would be these sad yes. stories about these people who need help oh, okay <laughs> yeah so kitty cone was on the damn show <laughs> oh geez and got yeah. a wheelchair yeah and that's how she got this really incredible wheelchair nice um however she she later on come to really came to really understand that that telethon was very much that paternalistic infantilizing mm. issue like take pity on the pause. Mm-hmm. you know <laughs> so her wheelchair kept breaking down though this is one thing that was, was like bothering her is
1: this one that she has to do manually or was it motorized
0: it is a little motorized i think okay uh based on what she was talking about it being very like very advanced okay. she said she thought it had been she first off she the interview is from the night like mid to late 90s. And she's talking about this wheelchair and said it was the best wheelchair she's ever had, period. Okay. And she thought it was designed by a man who was a quadriplegic. So it was like, designed by a disabled person for disabled people.
1: Imagine that. Imagine that. How wonderful it would be.
0: So she had this wheelchair that kept breaking down. And of course, not having a wheelchair would just like, it just completely destroyed her ability to do anything. So she kept having to take it to these, this place called thrifty rents <laughs> to get it fixed. And this guy at thrifty rents one day was like, cause they would, they would have to send it off to the manufacturer to get mm-hmm. it replay, like re fixed. And then well, she probably used it so much. I mean, it's yes. Yeah. Think about a car. Yeah. So she, yeah. Imagine if every time your car broke down, you had to send it to the manufacturer no. and wait for it to come back. You That would fuck your life up. Yes. So her, it, like, you know, she cannot go anywhere. She can't do anything. She's just like homebound mm-hmm. during that time and dependent on anyone else to come and get her. And there's no, again, no coordinated transportation for people with disabilities at this time. So she uh, is at this thrifty rants. And the guy at the thrifty rants is like, well, like, have you ever heard of the Center for Independent Living? And she's like, no, no I don't know what that is. And he's like, well, they have a wheelchair repair shop, and it's pretty great. You should, you should just go down there. They'll have it done in a couple hours. Oh, geez. So she takes herself down to the Center for <laughs> Independent Living and is like, what is this magical place? Is it a candy store? It is like that. It, yeah. is a, it was like an all-encompassing center for folks with disabilities that was surrendered, centered around the independent living movement. Which was advocating for systemic changes in all areas of society and government and structural changes that would allow disabled folks to live independently and be supported.
1: Yeah, if you provide the environment for them, because they are part of this society, Mm -hmm.
0: they should have the same freaking access that you do. Right. So Kitty became very enamored with CIL immediately and began volunteering at CIL, And eventually, she quit her work with the Socialist Worker Party and was hired to work in the Community Affairs Department at CIL. And at first, she worked under a man named Hale Zoukas, and Hale Zoukas basically did everything. He, That's quite a name. <laughs> isn't it? Hale Zoukas? Hale Zoukas. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a god. Yeah, right? Um, Hale Zoukas had, I believe, cerebral palsy, and he was... Um, he had really advanced cerebral palsy. Okay. So his CP meant that not only was he wheelchair bound and had like a lot of issues with using a lot of his body, but he also, it, it also affected his speech. Okay. Um, so he was very difficult to understand. So she was, uh, his translator. Mm -hmm. She had to go to meetings with him and translate what he was saying to the people in the meetings. He would transcribe the things that he was saying so that, you know, reports and stuff were written and she used to get very frustrated because like she also had a hard time understanding no. how <laughs> but she uh she ended up becoming like they were always together all the time and so mm-hmm. she ended up becoming really like you kind of learn i i have
1: one of my regulars he has cerebral palsy and just like after serving him for so many years like i could understand
0: yeah i have what a he's student asking like for that who um i could I can usually understand when he's when he's asking. Mm-hmm. sometimes it's a little harder. but he was working on um, like securing people benefits like social security income, attendant care mo- and also working on like systemic stuff like mobility barriers like having stairs where there should be a ramp mm-hmm. And uh, Kitty took her own initiatives like she as she became more involved with Hale um, she started to like, kind of get her feet under her and start to feel like she knows what she's doing and she started to take on her own initiatives and the first thing she organized was the committee for an accessible oakland okay because she was goddamn pissed about those fucking curb ramps <laughs> <laughs> and she had tried to go to like the well, pub- that's her daily commute mm-hmm. and she's having to fucking do it in the street yeah and she had gone she tried to do all of the like, cause again, she's coming from this very privileged white background. And so she's like, all I have to do is go to public works and tell them this is the problem. Right. And they'll fix it. Nope. Nope. They were like, <laughs> you're SOL. Yeah. That costs too much money. We're not going to do that. So she's like, fuck that. And so she creates this coalition um, and using those skills that she had built over the time that she lived in Chicago and elsewhere um, I didn't talk about it, but she does actually briefly also li- lived in Atlanta and worked in Atlanta. Wow. So she had really great skills at building broad coalitions of various organizations to support a common cause, even if that didn't seem like inherent to that person or that organization. So in her committee for accessible Oakland, she got the Easter Seals group to sign on.
1: Easter Seals.
0: Yeah, they're they're like a charity organization. Uh, They used to have, like, television commercials and stuff. Okay. And she also got the California Association of the Physically Handicapped. And they were eventually successful in pushing Oakland to put in some curb ramps, although every single street was its own separate struggle. Mm. They couldn't get, like, a citywide... Yeah. Like,
1: little pockets, probably.
0: Yeah, she actually talked about how there was this one... uh, there, There had been kind of, like, a a clash between wheelchair users and cane users and things like that and the blind. Okay. Because they were saying that curb ramps would hurt the blind because their 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 walking canes they're like sensory canes would not be able to tell when there's a ramp and so they'd like fall.
1: Okay. But that actually wasn't true. I was going to say is this an actual fact or No, it
0: ended up being kind of a red herring, but because of that, there were a couple of streets where they did build the ramps, like, not at the edge of the corner. They built them, like, if you think of, like, the corner, they would build it, like, a couple feet back. So you then... You just have
1: to keep... People would... Sidewinding and...
0: So you would, if you were crossing a busy street, you would, like, be in the road still. So, like, defeated the purpose. You didn't. weren't in, like, the area that people would crosswalk. So, so there were a couple of Probably streets. makes it harder. <laughs> yes. And there was like another street where they're like, well, we can't put curb ramps in because there are basements underneath. Okay. It's just like all this weird shit that they wanted to put in the way. It was just a struggle.
1: Yeah. Any reason to not do it.
0: So in her personal life, Kitty has now also met a woman and fallen in love she was a mexican woman named alma Nor- noriega and alma had moved to the states when she was like 11 but she had been born and raised in mexico prior to that and alma had a daughter named claudia and i think she was around 5 or 6 when kitty and her got together <laughs> and i'm 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 not clear on what the choi- like you know how we were talking about like kitty just goes head first in things yeah so she just quit her job and moved to Mexico with Alma. Oh. <laughs> so that's all in. Yeah, all in. Yeah. All in. She you hauled that shit. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that kind of a tourist? To tor- another tor- country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she and Alma and Alma's daughter Claudia moved to Mexico. They actually lived in Manzanillo, I believe. Something okay. like
1: that. I've heard of that before. I'm not quite sure where it's at. but
0: Yeah, it was, um, I can't remember where, it. W- I-, I looked it up on a map. But I can't re- quite recall. But she really loved that area. So in 1975, the three of them moved there. And she just basically becomes a housewife. Okay. All of her her work and like just going to
1: jump off the ship. I guess. Okay. She just hit that pause button <laughs> and uh,
0: just well, became you know, a housewife. Also,
1: from her perspective, she's thinking she's on borrowed time. Yes. So I can maybe understand you're in love. You've got a chance. Maybe just go for it. Maybe that's why she is just go for it. Go for it. Go for it.
0: I think so. I think she always went, you know, really full on into stuff because, you know, you might as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know how long you're going to be here. Yeah. And she loved Mexico. Love, 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 loved Mexico. Loved living there. Loved the food. Loved culture. Um, she spoke Spanish. She learned Spanish while she was there and became fluent in Spanish. Wow. And she really loved being Claudia's other mother. And, however, I will say that it's uh, somewhere around, like, late college, she started to drink heavily. Okay. And her and Alma were just fucking drunk a lot. Oh, okay. So, she later on was like, I don't know that we were great moms to uh, Claudia because we were drunk a lot. Okay. So... Uh, I don't think that really worked well for their relationship over time either, Mm. because they did eventually break up, and Kitty moved back to Oakland and picked up where she left off in her activism work. She soon became one of the key leaders at CIL, and she was organizing lobbying for disability rights across the spectrum, from housing to benefits to access to mobility, transportation. And her moment in the spotlight came in 1977. So, I have to back up for just a second and talk about 504. Okay. Now, in 1973, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act was signed into law. This was the first federal civil rights protection for people with disabilities. Okay. 504 said that no program or entity that receives federal funds could discriminate against someone with a disability. Okay. So, schools, courthouses anything, anything that had federal funding could not discriminate against people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. But like many civil rights laws before it, it was pretty toothless because it didn't have any specific regulations or enforcements or timelines. Yeah, so if like you can you can say that so you're blue in the face,
1: but what are the actual regulations? And if those are broken, where where do you go from there?
0: Right. and civil rights had the same problem. When the civil rights legislation was passed, that's why they had to go back and do things like the Voting Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act because... You can't just do this blanket statement. Yeah, you've got to be able to have some fucking enforcement there and yeah. some regulations. So there were all kinds of like nebulous things happening because there was nothing specific in the legislation. So here's some examples. There, this is her talking about this time. There was one case involving the right of a wheelchair user to use public buses in which the decision was that if a driver stopped and opened the doors, that constituted non-discrimination.
1: But they could drive on by.
0: And they were stairs. (sighs) They couldn't get on the fucking bus, but just opening the door, that was non-discrimination. They allowed the opportunity for you to get on. So once again, figure it out. Another case acknowledged that steps prevented a wheelchair from user from boarding. So these are two different cases that have the same problem at the center of them with two completely different outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that illustrated the problem with why they needed to define what discrimination was. How did, what did that look like and what are the regulations and things you have to do to enforce Mm -hmm. this? The department of health education, welfare, HEW. Was the agency that was supposed to be the one that issued guidance on 504. So they were supposed to tell federal agencies, this is what you need to do in order to be in compliance. Okay. But between 1973, when 504 was put into law, and 1977, no regulations had been put into place. How many years is that? Four. Four years. Okay. Four years with nothing, no guidance whatsoever. And that's why they're having these log, these cases, where things are just completely wild. So that isn't to say that there weren't regulations that had been drafted. In fact, the Office for Civil Rights had sent specific recommendations to HEW that said, like, this is what you should do. This is how this should be. Like, mm-hmm. there should be curb ramps on city streets, and there should be ramps that are accessible to go into schools. There's going to be a
1: multi-story building. There has to be wheelchair access to an elevator or a lift or something like that.
0: And there was delay after delay after delay. The Disability Rights Committee was really pushing, or sorry, the community was really pushing for the regulations to be published for public comment because they were waiting they were really worried that there was going to be like a watering down of stuff. Okay. Um, and so they were waiting. They had finally come up with a draft of regulations. Things were finally moving forward. A compromise was made and the regulations were waiting for the new HEW secretary because the Carter administration was coming into office Okay. and he was a Democrat and they felt like here's our chance so, all the new secretary of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare had to do, his name was Joseph Califano, was sign it. Okay. And then
1: on onward. Yeah. And he didn't? No. Okay.
0: So, it became very clear that Califano wasn't going to do what he was supposed to do. Instead, the Carter administration set up a task force to quote-unquote study the regulations that had been drafted but they didn't put a single disabled person on the task force and it became very clear that they had no intention of following through these regulations and had definitely planned to gut them yeah because in the background what had been happening was all of these universities and things like that had been like gathering together and quietly talking to the administration and stuff like that being like well we We can't do this. Yeah. This is going to be too costly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they have some weight and they have some pull.
0: Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if all the universities like. Just said no. Just said like, well, we really really won't be able to do that. It's like schools, universities, medical facilities. They were all like, well, we won't be able to do this. (laughs) So essentially what they were going to do in these regulations is put forward a separate but equal approach. In the Are you kidding me? In the fucking late 70s. Oh my gosh. So the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities was formed, and they were a cross-coalition of groups from all over the country that were interested in, in pushing forward disability rights. And they were pressuring the administration and the Democratic Party, because hello. Yeah. And the ACCD demanded that the Department of Health and Education Welfare issue the regulations unchanged by April or there would be some actions taken by the coalition. And of course, HEW did not comply. So behind the scenes, Kitty and many other activists were preparing for and organizing for action. Um, Organizing with people. I I didn't even think about this. Like organizing is something I'm very familiar with. I've done it. Mm -hmm. So you contact lots of organizations that you set up like times and dates and and facilities and so on and so forth. But organizing people with disabilities has a whole other set of challenges to it that I, as an abled person, would not have fucking thought of. And therefore, it's like clearly a blind spot I have in Mm -hmm. terms of my own activist work. Like She had to make sure that there was notifications for people who were deaf or hard of hearing or blind. Yeah. How do you get through to them? The teletypes, the braille, like having everything translated into braille, uh, organizing transportation because there wasn't widespread paratransit, right? Um, medical care, having medications and, and people like attendance, personal care attendance.
1: My mind didn't even go there.
0: Right. Yeah. How about, um, the problem that they're having, right? Is that like things aren't accessible. So like, what about bathrooms? Yep. All of it. <laughs> just like fucking basic ass shit that I just, I would not think of. I didn't think of. I didn't, it didn't come to me. Yeah. So Kitty was on all of that shit. <laughs> and not only was she and Shamelin organizing across these various areas, but she also was um, reaching out to other civil organizations to assist them and support mm-hmm. them. Because that's, again, that's one of her strong suits is this cross coalition building. Yeah. And so she was reaching out to like trade unions, churches, the Black Panthers, the NAACP, the National Organization for Women, Labor Councils, and they fucking came through. What a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. In fact, she told us an incredible story about the machinists union that I'll talk about. So, within the disability organizations, Kitty and other leaders also set up committees so that everybody had a role to play and people were on roles. So, uh, they would handle things like media, fundraising, medics, publicity, that kind of stuff. So, they were fucking ready. Yeah. So, on April 5th, 1977, activists gathered at federal buildings across the country and held rallies. At the end of the rally, the groups moved into the buildings and occupied them. Oh. Oh. So I'm going to show you a clip of a documentary made by the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund called The Power of 504, and it is narrated by Kitty Cone. So if you want to watch it, it's only 18 minutes long. I highly recommend it because it's an area of of American history, I think, that we just have literally never heard of. Yeah. So I'm going to play this little clip for you from the documentary. Here in San Francisco,
2: it all started this morning here at the old federal building on 50 Fulton when an incident took place outside. Immediately after that demonstration this morning, the handicap started invading the building. It's the old federal building, which is now the HEW headquarters. They spent most of the day in the office of the regional director here.
3: just gotten word to this, these people are now locked into the building. At six o'clock this building did close down. However, about a half hour ago they came up with an agreement. None of these people are going to be arrested or moved out of this building. Some members of the HEW staff will be remaining here with them throughout the night. Those people who are here right now We'll be locked in. If they want to leave, it's all right, but they can't come back in. Food, we hear, is being brought over by Delancey Street. However, the Salvation Army has not been able to come up with blankets or cocks, that sort of thing, so they are still frantically out looking for that.
1: What about the restroom facilities and that sort of thing there? Are they equipped to handle that many handicapped people, and could they get that help?
3: They absolutely are not equipped to handle them. The regional director asked before 4 o'clock if he could try to get out of this room because he needed to go to the restroom. And the group here said, no, we have had to learn all of our lives to control our bladders. And you must learn that lesson now,
0: too. I think my favorite part of that is that clap back at the end. Yeah,
1: that they've had to learn their whole lives. Had it like
0: you don't even know. You yeah. don't even know, bro. <laughs> How to control your bladder. Yeah. So those demonstrations in the other cities were over in that day. But the occupiers in San Francisco stayed. Day after day after day, they stayed. And the HEW responded by doing really shitty things like cutting off the phone lines. Okay. So they couldn't get out. Yeah. And t- they couldn't get messages out. But here's what they didn't take into consideration. What? There are people in there who's, who were sign language. Oh, shit! Who spoke sign language. <laughs> yeah. And people outside who could read sign language. There you go. And they were just communicating through the windows. Yeah. And so if they needed, like, food or medicine, they would communicate via sign language through the windows. Yeah. Fucking brilliant. Very. They underestimated them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they also, though, at one point cut off the hot water to the fourth floor, which is where they were that's really shitty and they even like the so it's like gaining all of this momentum and like it's day after day after day it's becoming bigger and bigger news yeah and so lots of like important people are getting involved and like trying to help them and one of them was the mayor of san francisco who um wanted to set up a portable shower in the bathroom like it was like where you you just hook up hoses to the sink yeah and uh that's what they were trying to do but the Fucking HEW said no. And when the reporters asked the mayor after he hung up the phone, like why was the reasoning said, because he's not running a motel. Oh yeah. Wow. Yep. And one of the things I thought that was really interesting in the uh, documentary and in some of the other stuff I read was that um, when they arrived at this building, none of the employees could even tell them what 504 was. They're in charge of enforcing it. That is abhorrible. <laughs> and that's... that. Therein lies the problem, right? Yeah. They didn't even know what it was. It's not even on their radar. So the man in charge, though, the one who's actually able to sign these regulations is not in San Francisco. He's in D.C., right? It's the oh. secretary of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Okay. So if they really want to get their fucking stuff done, they need to go to D.C. But... These these San Francisco protesters are occupying this building and they don't want to let it go. So the decision was made to send a coalition of some of the activists and organizers from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. to protest at the HEW headquarters and specifically Joseph Califano's office and try to get a meeting with President Carter. Mm -hmm. So Kitty was chosen to be one of those people. Nearly two weeks into the demonstration, a special congressional hearing was convened to hear from the activists who were in D.C. One of those was a woman named G- Judy Human, who I haven't mentioned yet, but she's probably the most well-known disability rights activist of this time. Okay, um, and was uh, very working very closely with Kitty the whole time. More, I would say, more famous and more important in a lot of ways than Kitty ever would be. But um, Judy, I think, has has gotten a little bit more. Of that spotlight. Yes. Not spotlight, but... Yeah, a little bit. I mean, she was actually, I think, in the Clinton administration. Oh, okay. So she, like, had a little bit more of a voice than Kitty had. So I do want to mention her and not leave her out because she is extremely important I also think her voice is important and just a voice of people at this time because, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm telling the story and it's not my story to tell. So I want to make sure that I'm including some of their voices. Okay. So I want to show you and include a snippet of her in this congressional hearing. She's very emotional. Um, It's like hard to watch it without yourself feeling emotional. But it's her discussing these issues in this congressional hearing, which is full of these white men. Mm Mm-hmm. And she absolutely has the, she's also the one who said to like, you're going to learn how to control your bladder. Mm-hmm. She's got some clapback skills. Ooh. And you're going to hear one of her best ones.
4: The harassment, the um, lack of equity that has been provided for disabled individuals and that now is even being discussed by the administration is so intolerable that I can't quite put it into words. I can tell you that every time you raise issues of separate but equal, the outrage of disabled individuals across this country is going to continue, it is going to be ignited. There will be more takeovers of buildings until finally maybe you begin to understand our position. We will no longer allow the government to up- Oppressed disabled individuals. We want the law enforced. We want no more segregation. We will accept no more discussion of segregation. And I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about.
1: Whoa. Powerful. Very. And you also- can just see, like, she's bubbling, like physically pissed
0: (laughs) yes like she's emotional in that way that is like so righteous like righteous anger and you can't you can't even the pain and the anger is palpable
1: and don't sit there and shake your head in agreement because you have no fucking idea and
0: he is he's just back there like "Mm -hmm." it's very condescending it is condescending i'm like it's that paternalistic yeah i was just gonna say that So the protest, and especially this kind of stuff, gets national news coverage. And this is the first time in U.S. history when a disabled person is allowed to talk about disabled issues on television, period. Isn't that just breathtaking? In 1977. Wow. And it was, like, finally being seen, not just by these activists but by the country as an actual civil rights issue because like you said it's on nobody's radar no one's and now it's being seen as a civil rights issue and kitty later talked about like just the idea that some you know kid in nebraska is sitting at home watching the national news and seeing for the first time that there could be a future that he hadn't envisioned before Mm -hmm. i thought that was so powerful So after 28 days of occupying the federal building in San Francisco. It's a long ass time. Without access to proper medical care. And I I want you to think about like these are people with severe, sometimes very complex issues, Mm -hmm. medical issues, who had gone without proper medical care, without consistent food, without showers, without sleep. Because they were often, like, organizing well into the night. Mm -hmm. Those committees would be meeting to try to organize things to make sure to take care of people. And after multiple demonstrations outside Califano's office, home, they went to his actual house. Oh, shit. And outside the White House, the disability rights activists were victorious. And Joseph Califano signed the regulations into law on April 28th, 1977. When they returned to San Francisco, Kitty Cone was one of the people asked to give a victory speech. So I want to include a portion of her very impassioned speech. The whole speech is about five minutes. I would love to include the whole thing, but you guys would be listening to it for the whole five minutes. So (laughs) I'm going to include a little bit about 90 seconds of it. is that right she's a very powerful speaker oh yeah yeah I really I really liked her speech I've listened to the whole thing probably four times
1: (laughs) (laughs) I really do like how she talked about the the children you know Mm
2: -hmm.
1: at that moment in time they're changing the opportunities for these children who are coming up behind them yes which is amazing
0: it is it's incredible And the 504 sit-in was, and still is, the longest nonviolent occupation of a federal building in U.S. history. And Kitty Cohn is credited as the, quote, organizational brains behind the action. But Kitty was obviously not done. She's still a relatively young woman at this time. It's 77. She was born in 45 or 44. So she's only in her 30s. Mm -hmm. And uh, now she was pushing organizations to enforce these regulations well yeah because you can have your have your day but then it's get to work so the biggest issue when she returned to california was public transportation and public transit Mm. and so she helped organize more public demonstrations and was part of developing the disability law resource center in 1978 and she also became more involved in lobbying efforts at the state and national level but in her personal life kitty was feeling pretty restless Her relationship with Alma Noriega had ended a while ago and Mm -hmm. her, but her longing to be a mother had not. So years and years and years ago when she was leaving Chicago, she had gone to a doctor to see about getting pregnant. He had treated her like she was absolutely absurd for even. She had two heads or something. And also he basically implied that she was, Evil if she wanted to get pregnant, because why would she want somebody else to have muscular dystrophy? Holy shit. So she had tubal ligation done. So it's no longer possible for her to be a biological mother. Mm -hmm. So the only real outlet for her to become a mother is to adopt. And in 1979, she's in a committed relationship with a blind woman named Kathy Martinez. And she's very much set on the idea of having a child. And Kitty knew she had to do an adoption, but the U.S. adoption agencies were still very discriminatory towards people with disabilities. They would they, they have to do home studies, right? Like when Abby and I became foster parents, we had to have our home studied. Yeah. And so if they feel like you're incapable of taking care of a child, they won't let you have one. Yeah. And it's very easy to see. They're the ones see. that make the, de- the,
1: s- the decision, yeah.
0: If you're, if you're, I mean, the way people treated them, like there's just no way there would be this open yeah. arms for someone with disabilities like, to become a parent how could you possibly be a parent that's right i mean they had a hard time with like single people they thought that was incapable so kitty knew um that she was gonna need to look outside the u.s and had heard that it was actually a little bit easier to adopt a child in mexico but she had to live in mexico to oh. adopt a child so that's what she did she moved back to mexico <laughs> She loved it down there. She did. She actually ended up moving to the Tijuana area because even though everybody else hated Tijuana, but um, for her, it was just a better option for her because um, it is very close to California and um, there's all kinds of stuff, all kinds of logistical reasons that had to do with, some of it had to do with disability and stuff like that Mm -hmm. for her to live there. And Kathy is Mexican American. Kathy Martinez, her partner. And... She did eventually adopt a son in Mexico, and his name was Jorge. She loved him deeply and wholly, and he became the center of her universe. While her relationship with Kathy didn't end up lasting, her adoption of Jorge was obviously permanent. And in 1984, she moved back to California with Jorge. She worked at the World Institute of Disabilities and then returned to CIL again. Mm-hmm. But by this point, she was she had did, she didn't speak very fondly of CIL. Oh, in the second round, I think they were less radical because they had gotten so much publicity. I think they'd also gotten a lot of money. Oh, and they weren't really pushing for that on the ground social change that she wanted to see. And then she eventually settled at the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund in 1990. While Kathy eventually retired from official work in 1999, she remained active in demonstrations, protests, and more up until her death. In fact, her very last Facebook post was about the dangers of fracking. <laughs> <laughs> she died on March 21, 2015, at the age of 70, from pancreatic cancer. Her son, Jorge, was by her side. So Kitty Cone was a fierce advocate not only for the parts of herself that needed fighting for, being a woman, being gay, being disabled, but also for racial justice, economic justice, environmental justice, and much more. And it became very clear to me through even listening and reading and stuff, all of the stuff she was talking about, even in the 90s, that I know hasn't changed. You know, that that we have a long way to go on the issue of disability rights. A long way. Long, long way to go. And I'm thankful that I now know about Kitty Cone and the 504 sit-in and the fight to become a disability movement. Yeah. This is a piece of history that I literally knew nothing about. Neither did I. And that makes me pretty angry. Because, like, I know what a 504 plan is as a teacher, but I didn't know where it came from. I just knew it was an accommodation. Yeah. Like, I just knew, like, when I got a 504 plan in my mailbox that I had to make an accommodation for a kid. But I never considered, like, who, who started that? Yeah, the work that went behind that. Where did that come from? I am physically abled in most ways, although I do have my own set of. I'm, I'm a chronically ill person. I also have Meniere's, which causes hearing loss, and I have some eye trouble. So, you know, I'm not. Uh, I don't have muscular dystrophy, but like I'm mostly able bodied in most ways. And it became very obvious to me that I need to really work on that part of myself, on mm-hmm. starting to really understand and take that in consideration. So I want to end with someone else talking about kitty cone instead of me. This is a video, a short video, that the Smithsonian's Women's History um, section did. This is a profile that they did, a really small profile on Kitty Cone. And there's a student named Wren who has a cane in the shot. And that person is interviewing Catherine Ott, one of the museum's curators, about why Kitty Cone's work matters. So I'm going to end with Wren talking about Kitty Cone
2: that it took that long. We're nowhere near where we should be with disability rights. You're telling me? There's still places I have to walk in the the back entrance of because I can't get up the steps. And the only thing in the front is steps. So I don't know that there's really any better way to visualize the getting pushed aside than, no, you can't walk up this way. You can't walk in the front door. So another part of when they were inside during that month-long sit-in, people didn't have their personal assistance often with them so they learned to change each other's leg bags and to administer medication they they were there for each other but they were risking their lives because of some of the
1: nature of some of the disabilities people had they could have died
2: putting putting your body and your mind your your whole self on the line because i know what it's like to be without things that you need medically it's Kind of one of the most awesome exchanges of trust that you can have with another human being is saying, hey, here's what I need in order
0: to keep living. Can you help me? Oh,
1: the severity of it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I thought it was just telling that Wren said, even today, I can't go into building. I have to come in the back entrance. Mm -hmm. Like, why haven't we fixed that?
1: (sighs) You would think it wouldn't be a thing anymore.
0: Yes, but it very much is a thing. Um, yeah, it's very much a thing.
1: Oh, did I ever tell you that? Uh, I don't know if I did that I learned sign language. No, I took four years of sign language in high school.
0: Awesome, I've always wanted to learn sign language.
1: We had Spanish, French, and sign language, and I was like, why not? I was like, that's something that could possibly be useful someday. And the amount of joy on people who speak sign language when you can conversate Sign, with them yeah. they're like oh my god
0: like could you imagine just being
1: so happy that someone can talk to you
0: yeah that the, the, like if you communicate with them they're you know you're gonna actually hear what they want yeah instead of guess yeah yeah it's lovely i'm glad you've learned that have you retained it
1: most of it um a lot of it is um finger signing which is like the individual letters of spelling or finger spelling yeah because i forgot like a lot of my action signs because like you can have different signs for different things Mm -hmm. but then you incorporate them all into like one ball and it's one fluid movement so that I'm a little
0: iffy on on. yeah yeah we have a sign language program in the high school that I teach at and I'm always I always love to watch students learn um, how to sign it's just cool it's just really cool neat yeah well that is the story of Kitty Cone oh fascinating Great, right? Right, yeah. So let me tell you about um, my sources. So the major source that I used, that I said, like I said, was over three hundred pages, was actually a a transcript of an interview that was done by David Landis of Kitty Cone, and it it was over the course of two years, from nineteen ninety six to nineteen ninety eight, and it is um online. Through the Regional Oral History Office's Disability Rights and Independent Living Movement Oral History Series for the University of California. <laughs> Say that five times fast. I also found an old um, article that Kitty herself had written, which was called A Short History of the 504 Sit-In. And I used Wikipedia just to double check on dates and stuff because some of this stuff was very overwhelming. After reading 300 pages, I was having trouble like narrowing it down. Mm-hmm. Um, that Smithsonian uh, video, which is also on YouTube, the Disability Rights and Education Defense Fund, Celebrating Kitty Cone by Lainey Feingold on BeyondCron.com, Kitty Cone's Victory Speech was hosted on SoundCloud by Time's a a New York Times obituary by Wendy Liu, which was part of their Overlooked No More series. Patient No More, Kitty Cone from the Longmore Institute on YouTube, and The Power of 504, the documentary by the the Disability Rights and Education Defense Fund. Excellent job. Thank you. Love it. If anybody has any comments to make or corrections that I need to make, please let me know because it's important to me to get this right.
1: I think you did great. Well, I appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for that freaking... (laughs)
0: History lesson slap in the face. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening, and uh, don't forget there is a Patreon episode up. I actually made it public and available to everyone because I thought it was uh, important. Yep.
1: Well, also thank you to our editor Lucas McIntyre,
0: and to the lovely Jennifer Finch for our Kickass theme music.
1: Ooh. Till next time.
0: Yes, it's a good one. Goodbye, everyone.